0: The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2022 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at clnycnd.com. had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' And he said, "'I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, "'Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?' The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You will strike your head, and you will strike his heel."
1: What's up, y'all? Come on, come on, yo! I literally, for the past four years, um, I literally wake up uh, every morning at 4:30 a.m. All right, so it's it's like 8:30 right now, so this is way beyond, way past my bedtime. All right, so I'm gonna need y'all to help me out. What's up, y'all? Thank you, thank you. Please don't make me do this again in the morning, all right? Um, yeah, so I'm John Anwachequa. Uh, it's an honor to be here uh, with y'all today before we pray and get in. I do just want to set the scene for what it is that we're going to do uh, up here in our time. So we read um, a familiar story, and the reason why we're starting off here uh, is because uh, one of the things that I've learned through my life is that this, uh, simple does not equal easy. All right? Simple is not a synonym for easy, and familiarity will get you messed up. There's something about familiarity that causes you and I to confuse um, awareness with understanding. All right? So it's like this. Um, I'm 38 years old, uh, and I am what you call an almost swimmer right? Um, It's really an actual drowner, but almost swimmer sounds a little bit more hopeful. I cannot swim. Through the course of my life, I've almost drowned twice, once when I was six and once when I was 11. When I was 11, I was at a youth camp um, similar to this, but it was the summer, so we would hang out at the YMCA. So my best friend at the time, Jamin, was there with me, and we're you know, splashing around in the pool while well, Jamin's diving in the deep end, impressing all the girls, and I'm in like the three-foot with all of the little kids. So I pull Jamin aside and I say, yo, Jamin, today is the day that I'm going to swim. And Jamin looks at me and says, John, it's easy. He should have said it was simple. So he's like, yo, all you do is you get up on the board You jump off of the board into the deep end. Your feet are going to touch the bottom. You push up. You look up. You move your arms like this, and you kick your legs like that, and you swim. And I said, that's it? And he said, that's it. My best friend at the time, right? (laughs) So I get on the diving board. I jump up. And after I leave, do you know that feeling that you have when it's like, yo, this is a bad idea, but I can't take it back? (laughs) That's what hit me. And so I go down to to the bottom of the pool. My feet hit the bottom, just like he said. I push up, I come to the top, just like he said. And then I start to move my hands and kick my feet, just like he said. Uh, But instead of Going forward, um, I'm going up and down and I start drowning. Well, Jamin has to jump in, put me on his back, take me over to the side of the pool and save my life. Now, um, one of the things that you learn very early on is there's things that you do in life that you can play off, right? If you walk up the stairs and you trip on the first one and you stumble and catch your step, you can act like you meant to do it. Um, Drowning is not one of those things, right? You really can't play it off. So I'm laying on my back um, and all I remember thinking was, uh, simple doesn't mean easy. Familiarity will get you messed up. That you think because you have an awareness of something, because you've heard a story before, that you know how it works. For a lot of us, we may have grown up in church, right? And we know, we think that we know how it works. But sometimes it takes us um, going to the familiar uh, things and really spending time and unpacking it. And that's what we're going to do um, tonight. I didn't realize that my time had already started. That was a little bit of an introduction. So I'm going to ignore this. I'm probably going gonna, gonna to try to make this as engaging as I can for y'all. I do know that it's late at night, um, and I'm not fishing for amens, but I would ask for y'all to help me out, all right? So for 16 years, um, I've pastored a church uh, that uh, the melanin count has been a little higher, right? (laughs) So I'm, I'm just being frank, I feel like we're family. One of the things that I have learned throughout the course of the years um, is that the higher the melanin count, the more likely you are to speak out loud and say amen. The lower the count, and I'm painting with broad brushstrokes here, okay? Um, I've learned that um, sometimes my um, fairer skinned brothers and sisters say amen by taking notes. So if I see you down there with your pen, I'm going to assume uh, that that's an amen. Let's pray. Um, our Father, as we come to your word today, uh, we pray that you would speak to us, God. We pray that you would speak clearly. We are here to hear from you, God. And we know that uh, the same words that created the sun and the moon and the stars, we have access to every time we open our Bible. So we gather as those that are in eager expectation of hearing from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Um, One of the things that I've learned through life is this, that our lives are nothing short of chaotic. Um, There are so many problems that come our way that sometimes it's hard to get a handle on them all. Um, I've got a five-year-old daughter at home. Y'all will hear more about her tomorrow. Uh, But one of the things that we've been exploring with her is colors, right? And there's these things called primary colors, where there's a bunch of other colors, uh, but a lot of them stem from these three. All right, we can get so overwhelmed with all the colors out there that we can forget that all of these colors have their source in three of them. Problems are the same way. Our lives are nothing short of chaotic. There are a million things that come in our lives that cause us a sense of chaos and trauma, but what I've learned is all of them find their home in three primary colors, three primary problems, and those are these three things right here. Peace with God. See, I already see a couple of y'all putting your heads down, taking notes. That's amen. Peace with God, functional relationships, and purpose. Peace with God, functional relationships, and purpose. I'll try to move through these uh, right here. Peace with God, first and foremost. It's the thing inside of us that wants to reconcile a relationship with God. And this is not just a Christian concern. This is a human concern, a daily struggle. We live with, is God pleased? Am I good enough? How do I know, am I doing enough to maintain a peaceful relationship with God? Even if you're not a Christian or religious, but you would consider yourself spiritual or superstitious, you live with this sense of there is some force outside of me that I need to be sure that I maintain peace with. So if you're here and you believe in fate or crystals or the universe or you're superstitious and you throw salt uh, over, over your left shoulder if it spills. You avoid black cats breaking mirrors, umbrellas inside. There's something inside of us that acknowledges and wants to appease a force outside of us. It's instinctual if we say something and every time I come into a room like this I feel like I age myself. Do y'all still knock on wood like we used to when we oh, All right, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, translates, all right? So you'll knock on wood, there's something inside of us that just feels this sense of there's a force outside of us that we have to appeal. Even if you would consider yourself atheist here in this room, that there is this sense of even somebody that's non-religious or an atheist finds themselves Gaining this peace with God by concluding that there is no God out there. So similar to my five-year-old daughter that can't go to sleep at night because she watched Monsters Inc. and she's scared that Mike or Sully's gonna come out from the closet. I have to tell her, Yo, sweetheart, there's no such thing as monsters. Or online, right, where people um uh, uh, jab back at you with stuff that you say and you're like, yo, how did they come back so quick? And you realize it's a bot that you're worked up and then you say, oh, there's actually nobody on the other end of this angst. And even in atheism, there is a, I am maintaining peace with a higher power by doing something to resolve the tension that an idea of God Creates, so I'm freed from the burden and frustration of feeling like I need to appease that God. Is there any chaos here for you when it comes to your relationship with God? Any sense of unease or insecurity? Not just peace with God, but functional relationships. I think I have to do the least to convince us that this is a real one. Chaos ensues here on the daily from friends to boyfriends to girlfriends to church members to teammates to randos on the internet. The divorce rate in the church and outside of the church is as high as it is because people get into a relationship, they feel this dysfunction, and they say things shouldn't be this way. And so they leave the marriage, the relationship, thinking the problem is with the other person, and they leave that person and go to the next person and find the same problems there and realize that you can't outrun those problems any more than a dog can outrun its tail. Not to mention wars that go on in our world over things that are inconsequential. Kids in Atlanta, where I stay, getting shot for no reason. I think the reason why we, one of the things that helps us see why functional relationships are just, are so much at the core of, of the peace that we hope to maintain in this life is because at the end of the day, our criteria for relationships isn't that people that we're in relationship with would fulfill us. We just don't want dysfunction, so we're okay if my relationship is not fulfilling. I just want it to be functional. And lastly, purpose. Y'all are in college, convincing yourself that you need to stay, convincing yourself that you may need to go because there's this thing inside of you that feels like I want to do something with my life. There's something. A a calling, a mission, something that I'm supposed to do with the limited time that I have here on the earth. Peace with God, functional relationships and purpose. And here is the problem. When chaos ensues in all three of these places, it forces a response. You're always doing something with all three of these things. Peace with God, here's how you know that you're instinctively doing something when it comes to being at peace with God. If you feel like you've let God down this week or you feel a displeasure from God, maybe you're the type to make more promises to him. That if I just say I'll never do it again, then I'll feel good about where we stand. Or you're the type here to just ignore it. To mistake A cleared browser history with a clean conscience. Functional relationships, arguments with friends, boyfriends, teammates. Some of y'all in here will fight to the death. Some of y'all in here won't fight at all. You'll apologize for things that you didn't do wrong just to maintain this sense of peace. And lastly, purpose. What am I here for. You know that you find chaos in your life if you constantly waver in between overconfidence and self-deprecation. That in the same day, you can feel like you're the best in the world and you could feel like you don't have any place in it. I think the only thing that's common in our lives when it comes to Finding peace amidst the chaos, the peace with God, the functional relationships, and the purpose. Is all of us are actively putting our times into solutions um, that don't work or they don't last? Either they don't work or the ones that do work don't last and we constantly need to do something else to maintain this sense of peace. You and I are always brought face to face with our inability to cure the chaos that's in our lives. And we're creatures of hope, we hope for something better. We hope that there's gonna be something that would bring about a sustainable change. And maybe you're here because you haven't found it. I just want you to know that you're not alone in your search for something better. And so what we're going to do briefly in our time here is I'm going to take you back to a familiar story. And the reason why we're starting here is because of this. You and I know what it is to come into a world of disappointment and have to find hope for problems that we didn't cause. You weren't the cause of your parents splitting up. You weren't the cause of the trials and the struggles that you've gone through in your life. But you came into this world hoping for something better. And I think what better place to start than a picture of people who came into the world and they didn't hope for anything better because they were in paradise. But they messed it up. So they feel a longing for how do we fix this. And I think that if we can look at their story and unpack it better than Jamin unpacked swimming instructions then I think that we'll walk away with something that we can leave with, especially as it relates to God. And so I'm just going to tip my hat at the beginning and give you my sermon in a sentence, and this is what I want you to know about God. All right, it is God's business to make beauty out of chaos. It is God's business to make beauty out of chaos. If my time here is like a song, um, that's going to be the hook, and you're going to hear it over and over and over. It's God's business to make beauty out of chaos. Um, I love watching movies. Um, often I stay away from previews of movies that I really want to watch because I know that in three minutes they can give away the whole plot line and ruin all of the drama. There's sometimes that I watch shows where I'm so emotionally invested in that I'll Google what happened in the show because I don't want to look like a little punk when my like my wife is there next to me right I don't want to jump at the wrong things. I want to be prepared the opening lines of the Bible the first three verses are perhaps the greatest storyline for the entire scripture look at what takes place here Genesis chapter one verse one says this, "Um, in the beginning God, we're gonna stop right there because it's important for you and I to know that the Bible, and I want you to hear this, it is a book for you but it is not a book about you. The Bible is a book about God and that book about God is the greatest thing for you. The Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. All right, I just want you to track with me. If you had the option to live in a house of glass, and your choice is it could only either be a house of windows or a house of mirrors, which one would you choose? Most people would choose windows because to be locked in with mirrors pointed at you and you cannot see out is not a sense of joy regardless of how good you think that you look. It's prison. It's you being trapped. The Bible's not like that. So many of us don't really rock with it because every time we read it, we feel like it's a mirror picking apart something that's wrong with us, and that's not the aim. The Bible is a window on top of a large view to remind you, you don't look at it to see yourself, you look through it and see God. And the same way that a mirror, right, like, like we're in this hotel and there's something about being on the 18th floor looking out the window to a city to be reminded that joy doesn't come when you look at yourself. Joy comes when you look at something else right through a window, more beautiful. The Bible is a book about God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was the only one that there was, the only character. He's self-existent. The reason why that is important is because in the beginning, there is nobody to convince God to do anything. So everything that God does is his idea. He's not coerced by it. And we see what takes place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What I love is that the story goes on. Verse two says this, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Throughout the rest of the Bible, those words formless and void are gonna be used for this sense of chaos. How did things get to be chaotic at this time? We don't know. All that we know is that they are this way. But I love how the verse ends. It says this, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. When things are chaotic in our lives, it's easy for you and I to ask the question, God, where are you? As if he's absent. And what you see here is God is very present in the chaos. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's hovering close, plotting and planning, waiting to do something. God has not abandoned you in the chaos that is your life. And then verse 3, I love it, it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And you see God do one thing. He does this. He creates, and he brings order by the power of his word. God brings beauty out of chaos, and the best part about this is Who was there to coerce God, to twist his arm, to convince him that it was a good idea to bring beauty out of chaos? Nobody. It was his idea. This is what God does by nature. Look at what takes place. Genesis 1.28. I love this. It starts off, God makes man, and it says this, God blessed them. Peace with God. The question I have to ask you is this. What had Adam and Eve done to earn the blessing of God at this point? Nothing. Thank you. I'm not up here asking rhetorical questions. Thank you, lady in the back. (laughs) Nothing. Which helps you and I know this. Look, peace with God has never come about by your performance, by your good deeds, by the promises that you give. It's always been His idea. Functional relationships, Genesis 2, God gives Adam a wife. He wakes up to her, sings the first love song in that little, like, Bruno Mars falsetto. (laughs) And then it says this, look, both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Both of them were completely exposed and vulnerable and didn't fear that anybody would exploit anything in them. Talk about a functional relationship. And lastly, purpose. Genesis 1, 28. God tells him, yo, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God made him, and I want you to hear this. His purpose wasn't confined to a vocation or a job. His goal was to live in the earth in such a way that as people experienced the goodness of God, they would... as people experience the goodness of God in creation and through their interaction with him, they would trace it back to the fact that God is good. And God's plan is to have a whole world of people who blame him for the good things that go on in their lives. And all of those things that they had, God gave it to them. God is a redeemer by nature. It was nobody else's idea. Let me see if I can put it like this. Um, you can't tell now, because all of my hair is gone after 16 years of pastoring, uh, but I used to be so nice with the Clippers. Um, I've cut my own hair since I was 12 years old, and when I say, like, I was nice. So nice that when I got into college and I wanted to share the gospel with people, what I would do was I would offer these free haircuts. So they would come to my crib, they, they'd sit in the chair, and I would start to cut their hair. And I knew once I took that first swipe, you're a captive audience for 30 minutes, right? You, you can't get up. Every so often, somebody would come up to me and they would find out that I cut hair. And I would see them from across the room. I would see them they would be like fearful, trepid, you know, they would inch their way closer towards me. and They would say, hey, John, and they would like give me a sob story about how they couldn't make it to the barber. They would talk about their qualifications. And, Yo, I was just wondering, could you give me a haircut? And what I told them was, fan, like, you didn't have to come to me with a resume my eyes were hovering over the chaos that was your bad edge up <laughs> from across the room. And I was about to make my way over to you. You don't have to convince me to do something that I already want to do. I'm a haircutter by nature. It's my business to make beauty out of chaos. That's what I would say to them. This is what God is saying at the opening of the Bible. Yo, You don't have to convince God to do what he already wants to do. God is a redeemer by nature. This is what he does. He brings beauty out of chaos. So that's why it's important for us to realize after all of that takes place in Genesis chapter 3, what we see is this. Chaos is reintroduced. Now we see how it gets introduced. Chaos is introduced when God is disregarded. Genesis 3, verse 1, it starts off with this word, now. One of the most important words in your Bible. Whenever you see now, highlight it. Now is a statement of fact. It's going to, like, draw your eyes down to what comes after that now is important, right? After that now is like a map key. It's going to help you see what to look out for. And so it says this. Yo, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. So it wants to draw your eyes to He's crafty. He's going to do a sleight of hand with his words. And if you don't look closely, you're going to miss what goes on. And he starts off and he says this, Yo, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Here's the problem. In Scripture whenever God or Satan asks a question, they are not trying to get information. What he's trying to do is get an assessment. Did God really say that you can't eat of any trees? Knowing what God said. Look at what Eve says. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. couple of things that take place here. That's not exactly what God said. What God said is, yo, don't eat it. But God said, you can eat of any of the trees. Generosity. Don't eat this one. A restriction or you will certainly absolutely die. This is not a threat it is a promise. What she does is she misses out on the generosity of what God has provided. She then makes God more restrictive than he actually is and then she turns the sure word of God into a mere threat. The serpent grasps and says this and this is the craftiness of what he does. Satan is going to contradict God's work. He's going to work, not just in them, but in all of us, to do this. Not to convince you that God is a villain by saying that he's bad. He's going to subtly convince you that God is a villain by making you suspicious of his goodness. Tornadoes can tear down homes, but so can termites. And termites are more dangerous because there are no weathermen and alarms for them. Look at what he does with this sleight of hand. He's going to say this, look, verse 4, no, look at this, you will not die. Or what he's going to do is he's going to put the certainty back in it. God said, you will surely die. And he said, look, you won't surely die. But look at what he does. He says, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What he does is he makes them suspicious. He makes us suspicious of the goodness of God by calling our minds to the restrictions of God and using his sleight of hand to make you feel like every restriction is a bad one. There are two kinds of restrictions. There's good ones that a good father would give his kids to keep them safe. Like I said, I've got a five-year-old daughter, and I assume most of us don't uh, have kids in here, but five years old is the age where your daughter starts to lament the fact that things aren't fair. I don't get why I have to go to bed. Real-life conversation last night. You and mom get to stay up and watch TV. I pay the bills. So I'll tell my daughter at times, no, there's certain things that you just can't do. Sweetheart, don't juggle with knives. I want you to have all your fingers by the time that you go to prime. It's a restriction, but it's a good one. But there are times when we do give her bad restriction. Halloween is my favorite time of the year because she comes back with these big bags of candy. And we tell her, now, sweetheart, on the first night, you get three. And every other night, you get to pick one piece of candy. After 10 days, all of the candy's gone. Do you know why? We restrict her so that after she goes to bed, me and my wife pick through all the ones that we want. That's an example of a bad restriction. Listen, Satan's going to convince them the restriction that God gave y'all is the ladder. Satan's going to convince you with the same thing. That God's placed restrictions on how you operate in your sexuality because there's something that God wants to withhold from you. God's placing restrictions in how you use your money, in how you take vengeance, in how you Deal with anger. Insert your thing here. Not to convince you that God is a villain, but just to make you suspicious of his goodness. Do you know why? Because as soon as he makes you suspicious of the goodness of God, as soon as you change the way that you see God, it changes the way that you see God's creation. Look here at verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Here's what takes place. Being suspicious of the restrictions that God has placed, she looked at the thing that God restricted, and because it was all of the things that she saw, good for food, good for taste, desirable to make one wise, she thought that it was only what she saw. She mistook the all for the only. And being convinced that God was trying to withhold something from her, all she saw was the upside She didn't give a thought to the potential downside and she went all in. Let me see if I can break it down by way of illustration. If you're looking for transportation, for excitement, and for some quick bread, some quick money, will stealing a car get you all of those things? Yeah. Will it get you only those things? No. It'll get you so much more than you bargained for. This is what sin does. It convinces us that all of what we see is all that is out there. And Adam passively stands by and lets his wife go ahead of him like some crash test dummy. And instantly, there is a death of sorts. And I want you to hear this. This is more than just eating a piece of fruit off of a tree. It's a symbol of broken trust in their relationship with God who gave them everything that they needed without asking. And do you know what takes place? Instantly, peace with God. Functional relationships and purpose fall apart. Look, peace with God is replaced with beef with God. Look here at verse 3, 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I want you to hear this. When God draws near, there's distance in between them and God. But it's not God that's creating that distance. It's them. Haven't you noticed when you find yourself indulging in the things that you want to indulge in, how hard it is to pray, how hard it is to read the Bible, how hard it is to even wanna be around God's people. And Adam and Eve hear God coming close, and they leave. Sometimes the distance that we feel between us and God is not because God has turned and walked away. God's still drawing near as he does. It's us that have gone. It's not just beef with God. It's this dysfunctional relationship. Last time we saw Adam with his wife. Do you know what he's doing? He's blessing her, singing love songs to her. This time, God asks him, yo, have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat? Listen, that's a close-ended question, yes or no. Here's how you know when somebody's in trouble, when they give an open-ended answer to a close-ended question, right? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat? And his response is, well, let's take it back to the beginning. Right? I was minding my own business and you put me to sleep. I ain't even asked for her. And then I woke up and she's there. And next thing I know, she get, gives me the thing and I eat. So really, the order of who's at fault here is you, her, the snake, and then me. And what you find is dysfunction in relationship looks a little something like this. When you find yourself guilty of some wrongdoing. It's everybody else's fault. Oh, people can do us wrong, and it can give shape to the sin that's inside of us, but nobody else can cause us to sin. Now he's blaming her. And then lastly, purpose. God gave them creativity to live in such a way that people outwardly look at God and praise God for the fact that he's good, they use their creativity and, in, and innovation to create clothes. So they are creative with ways of hiding their sin. If you want to see the creativity of people at their finest, look at how they cover up the things that they do wrong. People can get real creative when they're trying to hide something. People find themselves trying to put out the grease fire of shame with the water of blame. And you know, grease fires and water don't mix. And so the question is this, chaos ensues. They're definitely 100% in the wrong. How is God going to respond, look at this, to people not that admit that they're wrong, but how is God going to respond to people that are caught red-handed and still won't admit that they're wrong and blame him? What's God gonna do? Do you know what God does? He brings beauty out of chaos. Look at Genesis three fourteen. it says this. This is the good news of the gospel, it says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, look at this, Adam and Eve are both in the wrong, they're blaming, and God's first words are not to the people that are in the wrong, but to the enemy of their souls. God is showing that he's a father and a protector. He's like, yo, I'ma get to y'all, but look at this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. But then he says this, look at this. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel." Genesis 3.15 is an important one. If y'all haven't listened to anything else that I've said, I want y'all to get this. Your Old Testament, the Bible is built off of this promise. God is saying this. Look, one day God says, I'm going to send this seed into the world. And this seed, hear this, is going to bruise the head of the snake. A head injury is a fatal blow. In the process, his heel's going to be bruised. A heel injury, an Achilles, is one that'll put you on your back for a few days, but eventually you'll get up. This is the first display or promise of the gospel in the Bible. That thousands of years later, the Lord Jesus comes on the scene as this promised seed, and do you know what he does? On Calvary, on Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, he's going to deliver a final blow to Satan once and for all, but in the process, he's gonna be injured, but it's not a fatal one. His death on the cross, oh, it puts him on his back for a few days, but he resurrects and gets up from the grave. This is a promise that God's saying, I'm going to make things right. And believing a promise is one of the most practical things that you can do. It changes things. Michael Irvin of the Dallas Cowboys signed a guaranteed contract for $22 million back in the day. And they asked him, yo, how do you want it? You can get it spread out or you can get it a check at one time. He's like, yo, give me a check. Walked into his locker on his uh, locker seat was a check for $22 million signed by Jerry Jones. And he picked up that check, and do you know what he, he said? I'm rich. Now, at that point, did he have bags of money with him? No. Do you know what he had? He had a check you know what that check is? A check is called a promissory note. It's a promise. It says the person that signs this, I promise to get you that money. And you can bank on it if you can trust the name that's signed at the bottom. Genesis 3.15 is that promise with the Lord Jesus. Is that promise that God says he's going to deal with the chaos, the beef with God, the dysfunction, and the lack of purpose. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what he's done. That's the good news of the gospel. And do you know how I know that this was a promise? Because it changed things. Genesis 3.20 is this obscure little verse, and it says this, look, the man named his wife Eve because she was mother of all the living. Why does it wait here to tell us what he named her? Do you know why? The first interaction that he named her, he blessed her like God blessed him. Then when sin came in, chaos, and he blamed her. Now, after God has just told them that death is gonna come into the world, if he really wanted to be accurate, he would name her something like, you know, Medusa or darkness or something like, girl, you brought death into the world. But he doesn't. He calls her Eve. Why? Because he's treating her based on what God says about her and not based on her past actions. That's what the gospel does. It fundamentally changes how we respond to people. I had a professor in school that said this, I never saw God turn water into wine, but I saw him turn wine into milk. And he talked about his alcoholic father who spent all their money on drinks. And then he met Jesus, who met him at the bottom of his chaos when he did nothing to earn God's grace. And he gave him a promise that if he put his faith in him, that he would turn his life around and fill the despair he had with hope. And after meeting Jesus, do you know what he did? His kids didn't have to eat Fruit Loops with water anymore, but they could eat it with milk because the money that he would spend on himself, he now spent on them. That's what the gospel does. It changes how we live in this world. This is the good news. That as a result of this sin, God said, yo, There's going to be toil. You're going to labor in the ground for fruit, but all of your work is not going to produce what you thought that it would. And instead, you're going to get thorns for all your work. And then when the Lord Jesus comes on the scene, he's crowned with a crown of thorns to help you and I see. No, look, he is our substitute, y'all. Peace with God has never come by your performance or your promises. It's all come based on God's work. It's a gift. All you have to do is accept it. And do you know what we see at the end of this? In Satan's attempt to make God look like a villain, all he did was set the stage for God to be seen as more glorious than he could have been seen otherwise. I wanna end here, not with an application, but I just want y'all to look. Don't spend your time writing notes on all of the, like they got the notes in the back, they got your emails, they'll send you all of the scripture verses. I just want you to read with me. Just listen. I'm taking the first three chapters of the Bible, I'm pinching it in one hand, and I'm contrasting it with the last three chapters of the Bible. And I'm going to pinch it in this hand. And I just want you all to see the journey that God is taking us on. It says this, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis 1.5, the darkness God called Night. Revelation 21:25, and there will be no night there." Genesis 1:16: God made two great lights, the sun and the moon. Revelation 21:23, when it's all said and done, there's a new city that has no need for the sun and the moon to shine, because the glory of God gives it light. Genesis 2:7, God says this, "On the day that you eat, you will surely die." Revelation 21:4, there's going to be a day where there will be no more death. Genesis 3.1, Satan appears as the deceiver of mankind. Revelation 20.10, Satan disappears forever. Genesis 3.6, defilement enters. Revelation 21.27, there will be a city that's defilement proof. Genesis 3.8-10, through 10, the walk of God with man was interrupted. Revelation 21.3, the walk of God with man will be resumed. Genesis 3.13, the initial triumph of the serpent. Revelation 20.10, it talks about the ultimate triumph of the Lamb of God. Genesis 3.16, God says this, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in childbirth. Revelation 21.4, it says this, there will be no more death or sorrow or pain because he'll personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. Genesis three. 17 God says cursed is the ground for your sake revelation 22 three there will be no more curse Genesis 3:19 Adam lost dominion revelation 22 five it's restored in Christ Genesis 3:19 the first paradise is closed revelation 2125 paradise is open Genesis 324 the tree of life was shut down revelation 2214 the tree of life was made Accessible Genesis 3.24, man is going to be driven from God's presence. Revelation 22.4 says this, they will see his face. If anything, I want you to see this. The story of the Bible is not Adam and Eve had paradise. They lost it, and God is one day going to give us a reimbursement and get us back up to what they lost. The trajectory of the Bible is this Adam and Eve had it all. They lost it all. And God is actually promising to give us a better future than what they lost. The testimony is that, look, you and I serve a good God that makes beauty out of chaos, that initiates relationship with people who don't fit the bill. And the only thing that we have to do to accept the invitation into his kingdom, our RSVP is repenting, saying, yo, I agree with what you say about me, and I agree with what you say about you. And so the challenge that I want to give to you all today is this. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I ask that through the course of these days that you would just listen, you would engage, and you would speak Honestly. Tim Keller would say it like this. He's like, yo, if you don't feel like you believe in God, then I would love for you to tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And chances are, I don't believe in him either. I just want you to listen and just say, all right, is what I'm hearing about God, does it line up with what I thought about God? Or is there something else, something a little more uh, attractive? And if that's you, then just be honest and say, yo, I'm willing to learn more. And if you're here and you do know God, and you've known him for a long time, but your familiarity has caused you to forget the good things that God does in the way he initiates and meets us at the bottom, if your familiarity has caused you to think that somehow you're going to be made right with God by the promises that you make and keep to him, then I want you to listen as if for the first time. And I think at the end of this time, if we all just do that, just make the commitment to listen and to speak honestly with where we're at and don't feel the pressure to be anything that we're not, I guarantee that you're going to come out of this time better than you came in. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we come to you um, and we thank you for your goodness, the way that you initiate relationship with us, Father. We thank you uh, for the fact that uh, it's not just that you're good, it's that you've made your goodness known, God. I pray um, that at the end of the day, we would just believe you, that we wouldn't feel the need to beg you or to coerce you to do that which you already want to do. Convince us of your goodness and help us to settle and rest in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, We invite you to visit us online at c o n y c n d dot com.